Acts chapter 19, verses 21 to 41. And this is uh, basically a continuation of part two of, of where we were last week in particular. So if you're able, would you stand with me as I read God's word? Heavenly Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would descend upon us, that we might see with your eyes and hear with your ears, your word, that your spirit would fill us and we would have understanding, and Lord, we would see how we might live these things out and what to expect when we do. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. Acts chapter 19, verses 21 through 41. Now, you'll notice before we read that Luke devotes an entire 20 verses to this single event, and we'll see why this is so important in a little bit. Now, after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no small disturbance concerning the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines for Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. And not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship should even be dethroned from her magnificence. And when they heard this, <coughs> excuse me, and when they heard this and were filled with rage, they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. And also some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. So then some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and the majority did not know for what cause they had come together. And some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander, since the Jews had put him forward, and having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them all as they shouted for about two hours, "'Great is Artemis of the Ephesians!' And after quieting the multitude, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? And since then these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of the temples nor blasphemers of our goddess." So then, if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. 
For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's affair, since there is no real cause for it. And in this connection, we shall be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. And after saying this, he dismissed the assembly. This is God's inspired word for us today. Please be seated. Now you'll notice there at the end, he's, uh, he's a little concerned for the disorder that's going on. And uh, the, the concern would be that Rome would hear of it and send uh, some soldiers in to keep order. And that was not what they wanted. Now, uh, keep your Bibles open. Turn back to chapter 17 for a moment. And let me read a few verses here. When they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollyanna, they came to Thessalonica where there were, was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Some were persuaded to join Paul and Silas along with a great multitude of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, and coming upon the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. In verse 8 and 9, And they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things, And when they had received a pledge from Jason, when they had received some money, then they turned him loose. So we see that this is not uncommon for Paul's world. That he brings the gospel in and proclaims it and uh, people get upset. And we can't get away from the fact that people will be upset with the proclamation of the gospel. It is a divisive gospel. It is a divisive gospel gospel in the sense that some will believe turn from their way of life and follow the things of Christ others will hear the gospel their hearts will be hardened and they will rebel against not only the gospel but they will hate those whose lives have been changed and as we'll see in our passage this morning this is one of the problems there are consequences to proclaiming the gospel faithfully okay You will be hated, you will be loved, who knows? You might gather applause, you might be taken to death. So our passage this morning is about the tenth time, I recall, in Acts, that Luke is telling us that there are consequences to those who faithfully proclaim the gospel, who teach the gospel, and and bring the gospel of Christ in evangelistic effort. It's kind of like the... uh, Uh, The law of the harvest, you take a seed, you throw it in the ground, the seed has to die before any fruit comes up from it. Death is at work within us in order that life might be at work within you, Paul says in the book of Corinthians. John Calvin says that God has so ordered the church from the very beginning that the cross is the way to victory and death is the way to life. The world does not view things in that way, but yet that is how it is laid out for us. You see it here in in Ephesus, and hopefully, I say hopefully, sooner or later in our own lives, that as a result of faithful Christian living, of faithful proclamation of the gospel, we each will be hated. Now, I don't say that as a a red badge of courage, if you remember reading that book when you were younger, 
That's not what we're after, but it is, in a sense, a milestone in our life. If you have been faithful with the gospel, if you have been faithful in the way that you have lived out, and someone has turned to you in some fashion and, and perhaps turned away from you in friendship, turned away from you in, in wanting to listen to you no more, and, and being, even being angry with you because of your stance on what is right, take that as a good measuring stick that you have done well. Now here in Acts chapter 19, Paul is up to his usual practices. Let's turn over uh, to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He's up to his usual practices, preaching the gospel, living it out. There's repentance, so naturally there's a riot. Okay? Naturally there's a riot. It just seems to follow Paul around wherever he goes because he is preaching in an area that has not heard the gospel. He is taking it to people who who have their own way of life and their own way of thinking and their own way of believing and they do not want to be challenged with the things that Paul is talking about. Now, he is probably, and I say probably, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, he is probably referring to his adventures in Ephesus as he writes to the Corinthians here and says, verse 8, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death, and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. So he goes on to talk about the problems that he has faced and the potential even of death that he has faced for preaching the gospel of Christ. Now you'll want to keep a finger in Corinthians as we're going to go back there in just a a second. The power of the Ephesians, the power of the, the church at Ephesus is a spiritual power. They hadn't attempted to close down the temple of Artemis. They hadn't played uh, the Jericho and walked around the temple and and blew their horns. They didn't do any of that. They preached the gospel. There was repentance. And because of the faithful proclamation, because of the repentance in the believers' hearts, there was this great change going on in the city of Ephesus and the outlying area. They had demonstrated the power of the gospel through repentance. They had demonstrated the power of the gospel through repentance. It was people coming under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, under the transforming power of Jesus Christ, that was now threatening the business of the idol makers. And this is where, where uh, uh, Demetrius and, and, and really gets upset. See, people who were being saved were naturally being changed. They were changing the way that they lived. They were no longer hanging out at the temple of the great god Artemis. And they were no longer buying these idols that the silversmiths were making. And that was a problem. And it was a business problem for Demetrius. Okay? Now, it's a natural progression. People come to Christ. They fill their minds and hearts with the things of the word. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. Their lives change. Their behaviors change. They, they go out and they tell others. Now, nobody has to be perfect to go out and tell others about Jesus Christ. 
look at some examples just from the Old Testament uh, of, of the imperfect people that God used. Jonah. Jonah, I want you to go and declare to Nineveh judgment unless they repent. So what did Jonah do? He ran, okay. Uh, Nineveh's over there, so he went that direction. And then he preached this, this pitiful seven-word sermon. Golly, Nets. <laughs> repent or whatever it was, it was only seven, seven words, and the entire city repented. David, a man after God's own heart. How imperfect was David? How often did he fall into sin, but yet when he fell into sin, he confessed that sin and understood that he had sinned before the Lord. The Lord doesn't want perfect believers proclaiming the gospel. He wants faithful believers proclaiming the gospel because we will never be perfect. Now understand that Paul is not forcing anyone to believe. He's not threatening anyone with conversion or death, nor is he attempting to legislate a change in the culture or in the behavior of behavioral practices of those at Ephesus. He's preaching the gospel, he is living the gospel, and they want to kill him for the gospel. Okay? Now, why would people oppose Christians? Now, I'm going to give you two reasons in, in a few moments, but th this is kind of the overarching reason why people would oppose Christians. I mean, aren't Christians the people who, who willingly go help their neighbors? Aren't Christians the people who are supposed to be out? I mean, what, what's our history in missions? Not only have we taken the gospel out, we're the groups that, that build the hospitals, and we're the groups that provide the fresh water and, and, and teach people how to plant crops that, that can sustain them and, and, and build uh, churches and all kinds of things for them. We've, we're the people that historically have raised the position of women in society and cared for the least of these, the, the widows and the orphans and the lepers. We've gone into the gutters and under the bridges and, and taken the necessities of life along with the gospel to people. Why would people hate us? I mean, aren't those good things? I mean, you would think that those are good things and society would go, that's fantastic. Okay, keep at it. Keep at it. Why is there such intense opposi opposition towards Christianity? Well, the answer both in Ephesus and in our world today is that there is an evil spiritual being called Satan, and he hates the gospel. All that he is is in rebellion against our Heavenly Father, and all he does is in opposition to the works of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now understand that Satan is under the authority and lives according to the parameters that the Lord sets, and that's plainly laid out for us in, in Scripture. And as Paul later explains in, in chapter 6 of Ephesians, he says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the powers and the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul understands that he is battling against the work of Satan in this world. Now, it is no coincidence that this riot here in Ephesus took place when? Took place when? Look at verse 18 of chapter 19. Many also of those had believed, kept coming, confessing, disclosing their practices. They had believed, they confessed, they laid bare their sins. Many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of all. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. Okay, so what, what did we learn last week? Each piece of silver was a, a year's, 
A day's, a day's work, 50,000 days of labor involved in those books, and they burn them, and then there is this great movement, and people are upset. They have confessed, they have believed, they confess, and then they begin to act upon their belief. They burn those books of sorcery. Look at verse 20. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Whenever the church repents of her sins and the word of the Lord flourishes, Satan will not sit around passively wringing his hands. He will launch an attack. If we don't sense any opposition from Satan in our lives, perhaps we should examine our lives and see if we're doing anything worthy of his attention. Two reasons. Why do people oppose the gospel? The first one is because Satan blinds their minds to the glory of Christ. Satan blinds their minds to the glory of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Those who do not know Christ do not have the capacity, understanding to accept the things of the Spirit because those things are appraised in a spiritual fashion. Turn back a few pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Just so you don't think I'm pulling these things out of the air and making them up on my own, this is what Scripture says. Okay? Why can't people believe? Why don't some people believe? Now, to some degree Satan has blinded their eyes to the things of the truth. They cannot see them because he, in a, somehow, if we do it figuratively, has gone like this. There is a veil over their eyes. They cannot understand them. Why they, can't they understand the things of Scripture? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. If they're going to understand the gospel, it is a spiritual activity that must go on in their lives. So to have their eyes opened and have, in a sense, the hands of Satan removed from their eyes, the Holy Spirit must come upon them and that their eyes must be opened. Then they were able to see and appraise the things of God's word. Now, why else would people worship this this contorted statue of Artemis other than that their eyes were veiled to the things of the truth? Now, the legend of Artemis, we're back in in Acts chapter 19. The legend of Artemis uh, is that Artemis fell down from Zeus in, in the heavens. Okay, verse 35 of chapter 19. Uh, And after quieting the multitude, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? So tradition teaches us in, in, in that period of time that something fell down from heaven. They associate that it came down from Zeus. If we had to guess, it was probably some, you know, maybe a meteorite or something like that that came down and looked something like this contorted image of a woman that they had fashioned and named Artemis. Now, Artemis is 
is this corrupt and, and contorted image of a woman. Uh, and, and, and on her skirt, she has all these, these terrible animals uh, showing that she has, has uh, power over uh, the world and is able to deliver any of her believers from fear. She was considered to be the great ghost goddess. Um, she has the signs of zodiac around her neck and to show that uh, she has power over all the stars and over all the heavens. So in some, they viewed Artemis as having this unsurpassed cosmic power. She was called Savior, Lord, Queen of the Cosmos, and Heavenly Goddess. And she was big business. Big business. Now the Temple of Artemis in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the world at that time. People would flock from all over the Roman Empire to see it. The building itself was uh, over 400 feet by over 200 feet. That's four times the size of the Parthenon. Uh, it was the foremost center of worship in Asia. And it was a treasury house of gold and silver. So it was a very, very wealthy place. And each year, March or April, right around there, pilgrims would flock from all over the world to this place uh, in a sort of a Mardi Gras celebration. There would be concerts and athletic events and plays and banquets, and, and they would just uh, uh, party their, their heads right off in worship of Artemis. And much like the temple at Corinth, there were priestesses that would work the temple and help you to worship up there and worship the god Artemis. So tourist traffic was big, and the silversmiths made their living by making these little idols, either of the temple or of Artemis herself. Now, 19, chapter 19, look at verse 11. It's tough to think that these silversmiths had not heard about what was going on. seems like everybody heard what was going on. Chapter 19, 11. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Okay, extra, not just miracles, but extraordinary miracles. Remember the handkerchief, Dan's uh, stinky sock, uh, whatever it was, okay? He would, he would wipe his brow or it was a work uh, apron or something and people would come and touch others and they would be healed by these things. So you would think that these silversmiths would stop and ask a question, might this actually be true? Might might the God that Paul is talking about actually be true? Look at what is going. These aren't just miracles. They're extraordinary miracles. But sin and Satan had blinded their eyes so that they couldn't see how irrational that they were being. Demetrius and the silversmiths knew that Paul was saying gods made with hands are no gods at all. Verse 26, you would think that would be obvious. That gods made with hands are no gods at all. Something that you made cannot be your god. Now, you could worship it in air, but you can't make something out of silver, make carve it out of wood or stone, and then worship it and expect any action out of it. It's just an inanimate object. But Demetrius is, is so angry because he understood something in the blindness of his unbelief. He understood that this gospel that Paul is preaching is challenging the idolatry. It challenges the, in a sense, the stupidity of his unbelief that something I made could be God. And Paul is saying that no, that can never be true. Can never be true. 
So at first, Demetrius sees it purely as an economic threat. Verse 25. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. He's cutting into our profits. We can't have this. And then in verse 27, he turns it around and says, It will affect our entire way of life. Because our entire way of life is built around the great goddess Artemis. That she could be, she's in danger of being declared worthless. So not only is our trade in question, but our entire way of life is in question. Okay? Perhaps even this great goddess Artemis, whom the whole world worships. Now I'm going to diverse, diverge here for a second. The whole world worships Artemis, right? No. But in their minds, in their view of the world, this was everything. Now, how often have we said in, in our own lives, or you've heard in people's, other people say, um, that they, they make what they are facing normative for all time. This is the worst it's ever been. Okay? I, I heard somebody on the news one day say, you know, this, this political rancor is the worst this nation has ever seen. There was that little disagreement between the states a while ago, wasn't it? Okay? Um, uh, you know, uh, oh, the, labor, the labor condition is so bad, it, all you have to do is read about the, the Homewood riots in Pittsburgh, you know, or the Watts riots. I mean, those are disagreements. So we disagree. It's part of life, okay? Let's not make things normative, and that's what they were doing. Everybody worships Artemis. No, everybody does not worship Artemis. So this kind of view has whipped these craftsmen into an irrational rage, into our irrational wage, the rage. Their way of life is threatened. I mean, what would happen if what would happen to Hollywood if we stopped supporting their serial marriages or out of wordlock births or trips to rehab by no longer watching their movies or turning on their programming, programming that purposely speaks against what we hold to be true and right? I'm just asking. I'm not meddling. I'm just asking. Okay. Remember, we don't have to buy it. We don't have to watch it. We don't have to support it. This was the danger the silversmiths saw. We're going to lose our way of life if they don't worship this God. Go to verse 28. And when they heard this, they were filled with rage, and they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the city was filled with confusion. They rush with one accord into the theater. This theater holds 24,000 people. Some of it is still standing today. And they dragged along two guys that they could find, Gaius and Aristarchus, and dragged them in there. And Paul surely would have been killed if he went in, but the believers said, no, no, don't go in, don't go in. So there they are in this theater for hours at a time, just chanting, great is Artemis, great is Artemis. And, and there's this, it's, it's, you see the irrationality of the mob mentality here. Now, I've been in three riots in my life, okay? I didn't start any of them, okay? And, and, and it's just frightening because there's, there's no rhyme or reason. One moment, everybody is doing fine, and the next moment, bodies are flying and innocent people are being dragged in, and, and it's just this terrible mentality. Well, this is what is happening here. 
Somebody started to cry out that Artemis is great and they're going to take our way of life. And before you know it, the whole theater is filled with people and they, sh- they chant for hours on end. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, when we first read it, I asked you to pay attention and see that there were 20 verses devoted basically to this riot. Now, why would Luke take that much time just to talk about what goes on here? Well, one of the reasons, I think, is that it is the pagans, the non-believers, who are declaring the success of Christianity here. They are the ones who are so upset because Christianity has been successful there. People are believing, they're repenting, their lives are changing, and the pagans are noticing it. And they're noticing it to such a degree that they are rioting against them. Rioting against them. And before you know it, they're all going to say, you know, just like the, uh, the emperor has no clothes, Artemis has no power. Artemis has no power at all. Second reason, very short, people oppose the gospel because it confronts our sinful lifestyles. We don't like the gospel because it confronts our sinful lifestyle. Both the message of the gospel and the lives of those who have believed and have changed are affronts to those whose lives have not changed. Now remember, a gospel that presents Jesus only as a happier way of life, only as a way to success and avoids any mention of sin is really no gospel at all. You have to understand why you need a Savior. And the Bible plainly says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now some of us are better than others in our own minds, but we are all in need of salvation. All in need of salvation. And understand, if people's lives are being changed... Put yourself in Ephesus. If your neighbors and all those in your neighborhood are no longer going up to the temple, are no longer at the parties or at the orgies, no longer worshiping with the priestesses, no longer buying those idols, it is an affront to you. You have to understand, you still do those things and you are challenged by their change of life and it surrounds you. Your heart will either be changed or it will be hardened and you will rebel. And you will be angry at their lifestyle. Not at yours. You will be angry at theirs because they're no longer doing the things that you're still doing. So either they need to accuse the others of hypocrisy or spread some rumors to discredit them. Now perhaps you've faced that perhaps at work, maybe in your life, where you didn't lie or you didn't you don't cheat you but you work hard and you made others look bad because of your hard work i have a friend who um he worked in a job for about two and a half years and he was because of his truthfulness because of his honesty and his work ethic he was leapfrogging over some other long-term employees because they weren't as well trusted or they didn't, they didn't work as hard. And he was up for a supervisor's position. And suddenly when they heard that he was up for the supervisor's position, there were now these accusations against him. Their memories had become clear about what he had done two years ago. See, they were jealous. And the only way to assuage their consciences was to destroy him. 
and his reputation. Well, I know most of us don't like to stir the pot. We don't like to go up to somebody and, and, and you know, cause trouble and, 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 and challenge them. We, we like to do it in a more, uh, uh, maybe a, a, a softer way and, and, and confront them with the gospel uh, and, and let the word, word penetrate them. Well, upsetting others is one of the results of the proclamation and the living out of the gospel. Can't get away from it. Some will be touched and move to repentance. Others will be offended and even respond irrationally in a way that seems hateful to us. But we need to be at peace with this reality. This is just the way it is. It is the nature of the gospel. So let me finish with this from Colossians. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. If the word of Christ dwells in us richly, the Holy Spirit will dwell in us richly. We'll be more concerned with the needs of those who are lost and getting the gospel to them than we will be with their response to us. Because it's not about us. It's about the gospel. So let's pray. Lord, in your mercy, you have uh, changed our lives. You've called us into something that is very different than what we have known in the past. You've called us to take off the old and put on the new. You've said, I have placed a new heart within you. And now we not only have the path laid out before us in your word, but we have the power supplied to us that we might live these things, that we might present these things, and Lord, see you work through us. None of us are perfect. We're more like Jonah and David in their moments of weakness than in their moments of strength even Jonah didn't like the message that he proclaimed but he did it in obedience and you use that in a powerful way Lord remind us of these things that we might see this week where we might proclaim the gospel and live it no matter what the consequences are no matter who may hate us or who may not like us or who may throw up obstacles in our way we would understand that being faithful to you and to what you have done in our lives is more important than anything else this world has to offer. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.